Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 6 will be our text this evening. We'll be looking at, as we continue our journey through the book of Esther, a little bit more than halfway through now, if you please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and sufficient word. Esther chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials." Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, And he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would bless this reading and hearing of your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would convict us of our sin that you would encourage us by means of your word, that you would bless us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you know the perhaps not so old saying, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. I've told you before, I think the story, the famous story of the king of a large empire. His name was Croesus. 
And Croesus went before the prophets of Delphi, and they prophesied to him that he would destroy a mighty empire. And he was ecstatic upon hearing that. And he immediately went off to war with a neighboring empire. Only one problem. The empire that he was to destroy was his own. Perhaps you had another more personal experience in which you have prayed that the Lord would give you patience. And He has answered that prayer by sending circumstances and opportunities for you that try you, that test your patience, that give you an opportunity to exercise patience. And you may have wondered in the midst of that why you had bothered to ask for patience at all. Well, there's a story like that going on here in Esther 6. Haman is wishing for something. And he's not very careful about what he's wishing for. And so the result is something other than he expected. Something other than anyone might have expected. But not something other than what God expected. And we'll see again this week that God is completely in charge of all of the affairs surrounding Esther and others here in our story. So what will we see first? The first thing I'd like us to see is Haman's high hopes. As the old song goes, high hopes, he had high hopes. Haman thought he could move that rubber tree plant. But everyone knows he can't. Because what happens here is, Haman is wishing for something that is contrary to the will of God. Our story opens up in perhaps a mundane fashion. It opens up with a sleepless king. This isn't Seattle, but our king is still sleepless. He wakes up in the middle of the evening, and he needs to get back to sleep. Now, when you're king of Persia, you have any number of delights that are in front of you. You don't have a big screen TV. You don't have the Internet. But you do have uh, male and female dancers. You have all kinds of different animals that they could bring in and could show you. You have servants. You have every delight at your fingertips. Food, clothing. But, you see, the king is not about to try and undertake something this evening. He wants to go to sleep. And so, he draws perhaps some warm milk, and there's nothing better for getting one to sleep than to hear from the annals of the king. It's only slightly less exciting than the tax code. Because you see, when we think of annals of the king, we might think of stories of swashbucklers and armies and and great adventure. But really, the king's annals were very mundane. It was more like the king went off in year 453 with 10,000 men. They attacked this kingdom. They defeated the king. They imprisoned him. They went off in 454 and attacked this other kingdom, and imprisoned the king. And they had 15,000 men. It's pretty much the same story over and over again. Very, very formulaic. Imagine if we were going through First and Second Kings, and the whole text was simply the formulas about how long they reigned, and who their father was, and how they died, and they slept with their fathers. A good 15 minutes of that will put you out like a light. The interesting part about this is not really as much what he reads, but the fact that he is kept awake. What is he kept awake by? What does our text say? Do you see it? You mean you don't? 
Well, that's because our king is kept awake by nothing. He's just awake. He's not like Nebuchadnezzar who has a a dream that he can't interpret, and so he's up all night trying to figure out the dream. He's not like King Darius that we read about in Daniel 6, who is all worried about what will happen to Daniel in the lion's den, so he can't sleep. Our king is kept awake here by nothing at all. It's pure, pure coincidence, we might say. Dumb luck, some might say. What in truth is keeping the king awake? Well, we'll see, because there's a purpose. There's a hand behind our sleepless king. So our king reads this, has this passage read to him. And this is another one of our, it just so happens, passages. The king just so happens to not be able to sleep. And he just so happens to call for a certain volume from the snooze fest. But in the middle of that, in the middle of the annals of this king and this son and this army and that, they actually read a story of some relative excitement. It's about a plot to kill the king. You can imagine the king's ears perk up at that. Oh yeah, oh, there was danger there. Who was that again? Well, it was Mordecai. He told you about the plot and your life was saved. And the king's interest is perked up. Because you see, kings of the east were usually very diligent about giving rewards. It made for good PR and it also helped keep you alive. If people knew that they would get benefits for helping to keep you safe. And he asked, well, what has been done for this Mordecai? He's probably thinking he must have gotten a mansion or a summer home. Or perhaps we showered him with gold or maybe clothing. And the king's young men, we can imagine, perhaps quite sheepishly said, "Um, Sire, nothing. What? This man saved my life and nothing has been done for him? Wait a minute here, that can't be right. Now let me interrupt our story here for a minute. And let me place you in the shoes of Mordecai. Have you ever been in the place where you've done something, perhaps you have served someone well, or been a blessing, or or maybe you have spotted a problem at work that has saved your company a great deal of money, and nobody seemed to notice. You didn't get a promotion. Nobody thanked you. Perhaps you were a mom who worked all day getting the home ready, and Dad comes in, he walks right by and doesn't notice how everything is sparkling clean, how everything is in order, how the children are lined up like at Mary Poppins. And you think, well, what did I do this for? And you may even think, well, God must be against me. Because if He were for me, He would see I do something good, I should get a reward. Isn't that how life works? Bad, punishment, good, reward. Step to it, God. Why would God not want to reward me for something that I've done that's good? And when you think that next time, Remember this passage in Esther 6. Because that could very well be the attitude of Mordecai. But you see, nothing was done for Mordecai because it was in God's good plan, and here's the important part, for Mordecai's safety and blessing that he get no reward for what he had done. Because you see, if he had been rewarded, humanly speaking, that would have been the end of it. The king would have asked, what was done? And they would have said, well, we gave him 50 gold crowns. Good, I'm glad. Next story. i got to get to sleep. 
But no, God would not have it that way. God wants all the attention to be focused on Mordecai at this exact instant. Not a moment sooner, not a moment later. Perish the thought. God knows better than we do. He's in charge. He is planning. And so our sleepless king asks another question. He says, well, who's in the court? And here we see not only is the king sleepless, but we see fortunate timing. Because who is out in the court? Well, it just so happens to be Haman. What timing? What luck, Haman might say. I just happen to be here, and I just happen to want to see the king. And I'm not going to do an Esther. I'm not going to go in unannounced and have my head taken off. I'll wait patiently for the king to summon me. It may be an hour, it may be a day, but eventually he'll come and see me, and then I can get rid of Mordecai. But look, he doesn't wait but five minutes he's there. And the king is ushering him in. You can imagine his heart. He is saying, fortune is smiling on me. How lucky I am. You see, that's the attitude of those who don't understand God and His purposes. They judge everything by circumstances. And luck is only something that helps me. It's a way to describe the state of affairs so that I can be in control and God is not. So now Haman is very exciting. He goes out and goes into the the king's area and he is ready to get rid of Mordecai, to put him on this gallows that he's built 75 feet high, you remember. Haman is serious about this. And so the the king asks him yet another question. This is our third question for our king. He says in verse 6, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, it's a very interesting question because there is a crucial detail left out, isn't there? As I read that passage, I don't know about you, but I was thinking of a Charles Dickens story or novel in which how there's you know, miscommunication or misunderstanding because there's a little detail left out. And we're waiting to see how the plot twist will come. With that little piece of information left out, it changes the whole venue of the way the question is viewed. Now, you may not have ever been a king. You may not have ever known Haman. But if you're a parent, you understand this principle. Mom, can we go over to Bobby's house? Leaving out that crucial bit of information that Bobby's parents aren't home. Or can we go and go play outside? Leaving out that crucial bit of information that we haven't finished our homework. Children do that all the time, don't they? They're a little bit selective in what they do. Adults can do that as well. But here the king leaves out an inf- a piece of information that to him is not that important. But to Haman, it's critical. And the irony here is that's exactly what Haman did in chapter 3. Do you remember when Haman wanted to have all the Jews killed? He just so happened to leave out the fact that this was the people of the man who had just saved the king's life. And he left that out for a reason. Because if he had, the king would have told him to go forget about it. So, this information gets left off. And what happens is, 
Haman seizes upon it, and the real problem is not the question, nor even the answer. The real problem is Haman's character. You see, Haman hears this question, and he fills in all the blanks with his pride. Now, he makes perhaps a reasonable assumption here. Who would the king delight to honor? Well, probably someone that he's promoted. That's me. Maybe someone that his wife likes. Well, that's me. Maybe someone who's rich. Well, that's me. Maybe someone who's powerful. Well, that's me. Of course he means me. He's a sly dog. He just doesn't want to use my name. He's giving me an opportunity here to name my prize. I don't even have to pick a curtain number one or curtain number two. I can lay it right out there. His pride fills in the blanks. Now, I want you to think about that in the context of Esther chapter 5. Do you remember what the king said to Esther? You tell me what you want up to half my kingdom. And what does she do? Does she burst right in? No. She holds back. She's not presumptuous. She's waiting for her spot. She's trying to be humble. Not so Haman. He bursts right forward and fills in all the blanks with his pride. Now, the question might then come to us. Is that not sometimes how we pray? We fill in all the blanks for God. We know exactly what we want that will make our lives perfect and good. We don't just pray that the Lord would bless us. We know how He should bless us. We don't just pray that God would help our marriages. We pray that the Lord would help our marriages by straightening out our spouse. Because we know that's the problem. Right? And so we fill in the blanks sometimes for God. Haman's lesson here should teach us to be careful about doing that. To be careful about presuming. To be careful about letting our pride come forward and take control. And we see that Haman's pride is in charge here because his request is right in line with it. The king says, what should we do to the man whom the king delights to honor? What does Haman ask for? Does he ask for money? No. Does he ask for power? No. He's got money. He's got power. What is Haman's idol that we looked at last week? What makes Haman tick? What drives Haman but the need for public recognition? And look at what he asks for. It's all about public recognition. Put the king's robes on this man. Put the king's horse in front of him. And not just that, take him throughout the whole town. And not just that, but let the main official shout before him everywhere he goes, this is the king's guy. It is made to order for Haman. This is design your own prize 101. This is what he wants. This is his dream day. There's only one problem. We'll see the second thing here is, is that he gets... He had high hopes, but he gets a splash of cold water in his face. In a single moment, everything comes crashing down for Haman. Because, you see, for Haman, it's circumstances that are important. For Haman, it's his pride that's important. For Haman, it's himself that's important. And nothing else matters. And so it all comes crashing down 
When the king looks at him and says, that's a great idea. You should make sure it happens. Go find Mordecai. Now, if this were an animated Bible story, this would be the point where Haman's jaw goes from here and hits the floor and bounces a couple of times. Can you imagine? Wait a minute. Not only is it not me. Wait a minute. Not only is it not a Persian. It's a Jew. And it's the guy that I hate more than anyone else. And, but wait a minute. If you'd have given me 30 more seconds, I was just about to ask you if I could impale him on a stick 75 feet high. Oh. Can you imagine how despondent he would be? Can you imagine? Not only does Mordecai get honor here, but you have to see the irony, the sweet irony of God. He gets Haman's honor the thing that Haman values most goes to his hated enemy. What a mortifying set of circumstances. And we see this in how it plays out. Look with me at verse 12. They go out and Mordecai, you can just imagine, Haman is putting the robes on him. He's grumbling the whole way. I can't believe I'm doing this. Puts the robes on him. And you can imagine, he's not going to shout with joy, this is the king. This is the man whom the king delights to honor. Sure, it's him. He's not excited about this. And what happens afterwards? Mordecai goes, and he goes back to the office. He doesn't even take a half day. He goes right back to the office. For him, it's not really a big deal. Because you see, public recognition doesn't drive Mordecai. That's not an idol of his heart. For him, this is just something, okay, if that's what the king wants to honor me with, all right, I'm not going to be affected by it one way or the other. But for Haman, it is the worst day of his life. Look, he goes home, and he's mourning with his head covered. Someone's just died. That's how bad this is for for Haman. Now, if we think about this, Again, there's a challenge to our thinking. How often in our lives do we go from cloud nine to six feet under simply because of a change in circumstances? Doesn't that happen a lot? Same us, same relationships, same God, but because of a change in circumstances, our world is over. And... This doesn't just happen to adults. This happens to kids, too, doesn't it? You would think that with everything else going on in the world, if you didn't get one turn at the computer or one 15 minutes of watching some show, you would think that the world was over, the United States had fallen, and we better go ahead for the hills. Tomorrow the sun will not come up, right? Don't let circumstances dictate your life. If they do, you will live the life of a yo-yo. Because circumstances change all the time, don't they? Those that have walked with the Lord longer know this. They change all the time. This is something that Haman needed to learn and that we need to be aware of. And we see here in the midst of these circumstances that there is actually an opportunity that is lost. What do I mean by that? 
We looked last week at some advice we could have given Haman. The same would be true this week. Haman should have seen, in the midst of this difficulty, the challenge of circumstances and the need to kill the idols of his heart. We might even put it this way, that this is Haman's Psalm 2 moment. What do I mean by that? You remember in Psalm 2 when it asks, why do the heathen nations rage? And the solution to that is to kiss the sun, lest you perish in the way. Haman is a raging nation. He just sees Mordecai and his whole face bursts out red and he can't even breathe. But here the Lord has provided an opportunity for him to see that that rage in him is wrong. To see that he's driven by his own idols. And so the challenge then would come to us not to be driven by our own circumstances or by our idols, but to look to the Son, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to find in Him meaning, to not rage at the Lord, but rather to see His hand and His rod of correction as a means toward bringing us closer to Him. You see, Haman should have seen this. He should have seen God's invisible hand. It's not that hard to see here, even though, again, God's name is not mentioned. As a matter of fact, it's so easy to see that his pagan wife and friends see it. Look at verse 13. Haman tells his wife, Zeresh, and his friends everything that happened to him. Now, you can imagine the scene here. You've seen this. Perhaps even you ladies have really experienced this when... Your husband comes home and he's all bent out of shape and he's angry and he's upset because maybe someone cut him off in traffic or he had a horrible day at work and he's expecting you to be in complete sympathy with him and say, of course you're right. That's horrible. This happens to to me at times. My wife has this nasty habit of whenever I explain to her a difficulty that I've had, she takes the side of the other person. And it's frustrating to me. And that's kind of what happens here. Is he goes home, he's looking for a bit of sympathy. But they look at him and they say, Well, you know, honey, if Mordecai, if this is the guy who's one of these Jews, you're in trouble. Why would, why would I be in trouble? There's an edict to have them killed. They're a small, insignificant people. I'm the second most powerful person in the empire. Why would I be in trouble? There's only one reason that he would be in trouble. He's on the wrong side of God. And it doesn't matter if you have armies. It doesn't matter if you have a fortune. It doesn't matter if you have all the power in the world. You cannot resist the power of God. And even his unbelieving wife and friends see that. There's a challenge to you and to me to see that as well. That the only place you want to be is standing with the Lord in communion with Him by means of His Son. Because if you have anything else, you could be the richest person on earth, most powerful, and you could be just like Haman and be ready to fall. Well, this is an interesting thing here because the pagans see this and we might ask ourselves, why didn't Esther... And the Jews see this a couple of chapters ago. Why were they so scared that God wouldn't be found? Why were they so concerned that God wouldn't answer? 
And the answer is, I think, they lack the confidence they need and should have in the Lord. It's not unlike another story from the Old Testament. You may remember it. It's when the ark was found in the possession of the Philistines after a battle. They defeated the Israelites. They took the ark back. And all sorts of bad things started happening. Statues started falling over. People were getting diseases. And they knew the power of God and His presence in the ark. The Israelites, not so much. They weren't really concerned about it. But the Philistines knew. They knew they had to get rid of this ark. Because they knew that they were up against a power they couldn't match. You see, if we understand the power of God, we would be less surprised by our circumstances and more ready to face them. We would be bolder in our prayer life, expecting God not only to answer, but to act. We would expect God to be in control. Well, we've seen so far the story of Haman. We've seen how he had high hopes, and then there was this splash of cold water in his face. And then finally, quickly, we see something much bigger than we realized is at work here. Because you see, right now is the real turning point of the story of Esther. It's not back when Esther was able to touch the scepter and get to speak to the king. It's not back when she decided to stand. It's not when the Jews got together to pray. It's not even later when Esther, as we'll see, turns the tables on Haman. It's right now that the story changes. And from this point on, everything is up for the people of God and down for those who oppose them. And if we think about it, that's amazing. Because the turning point is a night of indigestion by a king. It's an insignificant event. It's something so small that we would not even consider it to be important. But isn't that exactly like God? To take an insignificant event like the birth of a baby in a backwater town of an empire. Like the carrying out of a sentence of a criminal in an area by a Roman governor. Like a journey across a strait of water into Europe by a missionary. Like a monk opening up the book of Romans and reading for the first time about the justification that can be found by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. These little insignificant events are used by God to move nations, armies, the course of events of the whole world. This is much bigger than we realize. And if we also think about it, this little insignificant event that is the turning point, who is here? Is Esther here? Is Mordecai really even here doing much? Who is here? It's God. He's the one that's in the midst of this event. He's the one turning things. But just because God is in control and just because His invisible hand is upon Esther and Mordecai does not mean that people are irrelevant. You see, God acts, but He acts through people. And this turning point is all of God, but Esther still must summon up the courage and faith in the Lord to stand before the king and to look and point at Haman and say, this is the man. The Jews must still rise up and resist. 
fit. Why is it that God uses people like Esther and Mordecai and the Jews after he's so in control? It's because faithfulness is still important to God. And that's true for you and for me today. You see, the victory over sin has already been won. Christ is risen. He is the first fruits. There is a surety that death has no more sting. But still today, we are called to be faithful in the sight of that victory. To journey on. To labor on. To fight the good fight, as Paul would say. Who could have predicted this little insignificant event would so shake up the world? Obviously, Esther couldn't have, nor Mordecai. We know Haman wasn't aware it was coming as a hidden blindside. Does anyone possibly able to predict that this is what would happen? It's an amazing story. Yes, the Scripture. The Scripture that cannot be broken. The same Scripture that says in Genesis 12, verse 3, those that curse Abraham and his seed will be cursed. The same Scripture that in Exodus 17 says that if Amalek opposes Israel, it will be cursed. The Scripture cannot be broken. Those who resist God lose because God is sovereign. God is powerful. And so we might finally then ask ourselves, who is the one whom God delights to honor? If we looked ahead a little bit in where we are in Philippians, we would see. The one in whom the Lord delights to honor is the one of whom it is said, in chapter 2 and verse 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every tongue will confess, even some who unwittingly or undesiringly will profess that he is Lord, just as Haman had to honor Mordecai. And if we think about it, our Lord is the exact reverse of Haman. He's humble. He serves others. He thinks of them. But the blessing to us is that the Lord delights to honor not only the Lord Jesus Christ, but also those who are in Christ, those who will reign with Him, His people. And so I invite you this evening and this week to examine your own life, to think about what moves you, to think about what your meaning is. It's not wealth. It's not power. It's not fame. Haman had all of that. What matters is Jesus Christ. And being in Him. And being found in Him. On that day. That is what drives the Christian. Let us pray.